All right. So uh, pressure bag, a liter of fluid, and let's start. Okay. Let's start to leave with that at point zero four. Let's give him a little bit of support. Chaos. The definition of chaos is complete disorder and confusion. The world of critical care is often a chaotic place, accompanied by stress and disorganization. One of the keys to working with critically ill patients is taking control of the chaos, especially when a patient has lost a pulse. But how do you take control? Why does it seem so easy when it is often so difficult? ACLS protocol when a pulse is lost is often straightforward and considered simple. The medication doses, rhythm interpretation, and timing of drugs is something well known to most providers. But the thing that's really difficult, even to seasoned providers, is controlling the chaos of a room. Today we have Mike Burden with us to help navigate that world. So, like Rachel said, we're assuming you're coming to this podcast with the basic understanding of how ACLS works. And I'm presuming if you do ED critical care for a living that you have been involved in some codes. And as far as what kind of podcast we wanted to make, there's plenty of good cardiac arrest podcast out there in the foam world. And we'll link a couple examples like uh, Weingart with MCRIT has several great cardiac arrest episodes. But what we didn't see out on the market is one that kind of details the anatomy of the code, the hard part of running a code, some of the intangibles. Yep. And who else better to talk about this than Mike? Code man. So if you don't know Mike, he was on our last episode when we talked about patient assessment, but he is an awesome PA that we work with that is a pro at all things, you know, ACLS, really anything when it comes to the crashing patient. Adrenaline junkie. What did you tell me one time? You want to be able to operate all pieces of machinery that exist? <laughs> Yeah, I think I need to go to, like, train driving school or something. <laughs> yeah, that's one thing you're missing. Yeah. Can't drive a train. It's sad. So last episode, we did some patient assessment. And a lot of times you're doing that in a rapid response scenario. A lot of times we've taken to call in those near-code situations. And so at some point, a near-code patient will transition to an actual code. And so let's just talk through what are the first things you should do when you arrive on scene of either a coding patient or your rapid response patient is now transitioning to actually coding. What should you be doing first? So, you know, I think it's sometimes a little bit difficult actually to recognize when this patient has transitioned from near code to code. It sounds like you would always know, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, if a patient's intubated and they're already sedated, they're not going to have a sudden change in mental status, right? If you have a patient that does not have an art line in, you're not going to see a loss of pulse per se. So sometimes the transition from a near code to an actual cardiac arrest goes a minute or two unnoticed. One of the ways that you can more quickly recognize that the patient is coded is to have someone checking a pulse frequently or continuously. Yeah. Um, and they'll know the exact time that the patient uh, loses a pulse. One of the other ways that you can monitor a loss of pulse is by watching the pulse oximeter. If you have a good pulse oximeter waveform on a patient, you know, with uh, good good pleth and a good waveform, patient likely has a pulse. You know, once you've determined that the patient is in cardiac arrest, your entire mentality changes. You go from basically trying to treat certain numbers like a blood pressure or a pulse oximeter and titrating medications and oxygen to those numbers to following a protocol, ensuring that you are keeping perfusion to the vital organs, most importantly the brain, 
and trying to very quickly reverse the cause of the arrest. Uh, in some ways, it's just a little bit more barbaric and rough around the edges, to be honest. Let's transition into some of the general code opportunities we've seen. We'll talk through a couple key points. At first off, in the hospital, a lot of times, um, let's talk about 30 and 2 versus continuous compressions. Um, I'm so glad you asked about this. This is... <laughs> This is uh, this is something I think that's changed slowly over the past couple of years. We've taken the idea of compressions is better, more is better, and I think we've just swung a little too far. The American Heart Association has issued a few years back that continuous compressions or hands-only CPR was okay for the lay provider outside the hospital. Those recommendations came from the fact that they don't have ventilation devices in a lot of places in the public and that the public was really scared to do mouth-to-mouth. And so by basically exonerating that lay person from having to do mouth-to-mouth and saying, it's okay to just do chest compressions, it's, it's at least allowed them to continue perfusion while EMS personnel are on the way. That's kind of, I think, made its way over into the healthcare provider to think that it's okay to just do continuous chest compressions, which as long as you have an advanced airway in place, it is. You can do right. continuous chest compressions and give one breath every five to six seconds. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes, too, from we're just used to having endotracheal tubes in place. You yeah, know. Exactly. Without an advanced airway in place, if you do continuous chest compressions and you're not stopping for the entire two minutes and someone seals the BVM mask around a patient's face and delivers a tidal volume, you're not going to get that tidal volume down into all of it into the lungs. You're going to get a lot of that down to the stomach. And so there's really no effective way to ventilate a patient without an advanced airway while chest compressions are occurring. So when you're running that in the hospital, you're telling the CPR person, do 30, stop, deliver two breaths, resume. That's correct. Right. You know, I usually tell people to pick back up counting about 25 and just count the last five out so the person delivering a breath knows, you know, they're about to be up. So what about pad placement, the pads anterior posterior or anterior lateral? So I think what's created a little confusion around that is that we have some new pads for our Zoll monitors that allow us to monitor the depth of chest compressions and the rate of chest compressions and actually give some verbal feedback through the Zoll monitor and Push we, harder. That's pretty good. <laughs> if we want to utilize that function, then we do need to place the pads anterior, posterior. Good compression. <laughs> but that's not needed for effective defibrillation. You can still use the anterior and lateral placement of the pads. And so, you know, if we're going to roll the patient, we're going to put a backboard under them, and, you know, we can coordinate at the same time so that we just have one roll, put the pad on the back, and a pad, you know, in the appropriate position on the front. If it's a, a very large patient or somebody that already has a backboard under them and rolling them is just logistically going to be difficult, you can just use an anterior lateral placement of the pads. You won't get the feedback of the compression depth, but you can effectively defibrillate that patient. It's assumed that when we just say that the pads are on, that they're in the appropriate position. And I find way too often that's not the case. Inspired by uh, a recent code that I I witnessed. Um, Yeah, make sure you're not defibrillating the liver. (laughs) That means you did your job as the code leader and identified (laughs) the pads were incorrectly placed and had them replace them correctly. I think that's the definition of shock liver. I'll call that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, we've got a whole episode out there if you want to go back and, and read about the article that came out last year, a couple years ago on 
intubation during in-hospital cardiac arrest and, and that that increased mortality. And, and since then, we've been trying to intubate less in a, in a code. You know, I think we're doing a better job of that for sure. I have seen a lot less pushback to, you know, just doing 30 to 2 and, uh, and or placing an LMA during the cardiac arrest phase. It's not just that it's difficult to intubate during chest compressions and that we should not stop chest compressions just to place an endotracheal tube, but it really takes up a lot of resources for the team. It creates more more chaos. It's a lot more chaotic to try to organize and set up intubation to get a CMAC in the room if you're going to use video laryngoscopy. It takes three or four people to you know prep supplies, things like that. Again, just clutters the room up. In the event that you're not ventilating appropriately, with bag valve mask or use of an LMA, by all means, you know, you can work on intubating the patient. While we're on the subject of ventilating, let's talk quickly about overventilating a patient, seeing someone, their adrenaline's up and they're just aggressively bagging someone 30 times a minute. In general, we do ventilate quickly on patients that are acidotic and we usually don't have a whole lot of problem going up on PEEP, especially if someone is hypoxic. But, you know, if you're in cardiac arrest, Without chest compressions, you have zero perfusion, of course, or very little perfusion. And chest compressions are only 30% or 40% effective at circulating your blood volume as compared to if you actually had ROSC. You're really not getting blood back into the chest adequately. You're not, you know, circulating adequately for the most part. You're just barely getting by trying to do what you can to perfuse organs. And so any extra increased intrathoracic pressure is going to just prohibit that blood flow and and return, uh, you know, venous return even more. And so that's what happens when we try to ventilate a patient 30 times a minute during cardiac arrest or when we turn the PEEP up during cardiac arrest. A lot of times the reason the patient's hypoxic, if we're even able to get a pulse oximetry reading or an ABG, is because no not a lot of blood's flowing through the lungs. And again, if we reduce blood flow and circulation even more, that not only is just going to worsen hypoxia, but it's going to prevent us from getting return of circulation. So, you know, that's really why the you know, the recommendations from the American Heart Association are, you know, ventilate at 10 to 12 times per minute. Um, I'm not really sure if they recommend anything on PEEP, but just be very cautious with increasing those things. Now, once you get return of circulation and you're able to check blood pressure and all that stuff, by all means, as long as the hemodynamics allow, you can go up on PEEP ventilate faster. Now that we've talked about some issues that are applicable to the entire ACLS team, let's talk more about how to be a leader when you're running the code. So there's a code blue called overhead and you arrive to the scene. Either one of you guys, how, how do you introduce yourself if it's clear you're, you walk in the room and you're, you're thinking you're going to be the code leader? One thing I always do when I enter the room of a code blue or assumed code blue, you know, compressions are being done, is I immediately announce, is there somebody leading this code? And typically, especially at night, they'll be like, no, not at all. And then I introduce myself as Rachel from Critical Care. I'm here to lead the code. What roles have we assigned so far? They'll tell me. Then I verbally, loudly state roles that I want to assign. And usually point because I don't know the nurses' names, you know, if it's on the floor or something like that. I like that because you're not necessarily automatically assuming you should be the code leader, which I confess I make the mistake of a lot of times, walk in and think I should be leading. There's a lot of different cooks in the kitchen. So yeah, asking if there's anyone leading the code is a great starting point. Yeah, I agree. And I, for sure, once you have established you're going to be the code leader, I usually maybe kind of feel like a little bit of a kid there raising my hand, but I usually raise my hand and state very loudly and clearly, 
you know, hey, my name is Mike and I am now the code leader. And that kind of lets everyone now know to, you know, that take direction for me. And uh, that if there was another code leader already, that it has now transitioned to me being the code leader. Exactly. And I think a lot of it is the voice that you stated in, you know, not just quietly saying, hey, it's Mike. And then no one hears you, but really, really loudly and directly, not overwhelmed. Like you want to still have that sense of control, but where people after the code will say it's obvious that you were the code leader once you spoke. So I think that brings up a good point. Communication has to be very clear and very concise and avoid using ambiguous communication or ambiguous words. The point you were making there, which is to leave no doubt after you make that statement that you are the code leader. And of course, we need closed loop communication in codes. And I don't really guess I've ever thought about it. No one ever repeats back that you're the code leader. So I guess that's not closed loop. (laughs) Um, But I think if you say it with enough gusto, then there's no question. But after that, when we're giving orders for medications or, you know, assigning, um, you know, roles or something like that, then we need to have closed loop communication, which kind of looks like this. Uh, Okay, John, can we please push one milligram of epinephrine IV? All right. One milligram of EpiN. All right, so then it's gotten back to me. I've heard that. Uh, understand that there's one milligram of epinephrine has been pushed. And so that's closed-loop communication. An order is given. An order is read back and verified if it's not happening right away. And then after the intervention is complete, clear verbal communication back that the task has been completed. Yeah. I think even to, to your point about assigning roles, I could walk in a room and look and see. Looks like there's someone on CPR. There's someone on airway. I can see all of those things. And I think that's where a lot of new people fail. They look around and they see those things happening. I think that's good enough. But I love just even if all of those roles are already happening, saying that out loud. All right, I see that we have someone on CPR. I see we have an RT getting set up for airway. I see we've got someone at the code cart ready to push drugs. I think just communicating more up front like that really just sets the room up to understand you're the leader, to understand how communication is going to go in this code. And I think it really puts everyone at ease, in my experience, rather than walking in and, and kind of being silent and thinking all those things in your head. I think a huge barrier to this kind of communication, too, is when there is a lot of noise in the room. I think if you are trying to announce yourself as a leader and trying to assign these roles and no one could hear you or that it's way too chaotic, actually announcing to the room everyone that isn't involved in this code leave, only essential communication. How many floor codes have we all been to where mm-hmm. there's 30 people in the room? And despite that many people being in the room, there's actually only two frantic nurses doing all the things and trying to push drugs and do CPR and everyone else is just kind of standing around. And I think that that's absolutely a great point. Get the roles established, get people in those roles and then say, all right, at this point, if you're not performing a task, please step out. It's one of the major challenges I think we're facing here is crowd control and noise control. A lot of our rooms, especially, you know, on the floors are so small and there's so much furniture in there that we barely have room to operate. So when there's a couple of more people, it really jams things up. Now, when you're trying to run the code, the code leader may not necessarily be able to go and push everybody out of the room and talk to them, but you can definitely assign someone to do that. Yeah, I think people are well-intentioned. There's not 20 people in the room just that are planning on getting in your way. Everyone wants to help. And I think that's at the core of everyone who runs to a code is there to help. But I think even for myself, sometimes reminding myself, 
hey, Mike's in there running the code. He's got this. Yeah, I'm critical care. I should be at codes. But Mike's critical care too. He's running this code. We've got all the roles are in place. I'm more helpful standing outside, either being ready if he needs me or going to the computer and looking through the patient's chart and trying to see if I can glean potentially why they coded. Those are helpful things I can do outside the room rather than just getting in the way inside the room. Yeah, I think one of the other big things that is indirect and we don't necessarily think about it is if we put all of our resources at one place and wrap them up in the same task, it really leaves our other patients vulnerable. You know, that cardiac arrest really takes up a lot of time, but we still have patients to see on rounding. There could be other emergencies around the hospital. I think that's a good point. I think we're starting to get better at that, but I think we can we can do an even better job. I don't what do you think is the right amount of people we should be sending to codes? I mean, I don't know if there's a exact answer here. Of course, every situation is different. I think kind of a tiered response a lot of times. I think initially just sending two or three people. And as long as we understand there's other resources out there, you know, then then if I start to get overwhelmed, I can send a text message out or, or have stat team call and get some more resources there while I continue to work. Uh, we can even strike another call, call it overhead again. And people will hear that and try to come. That's a good point. Yeah, exactly. Communication between the team and you know, knowing that if Mike's running the room on a code if, and he needs me to do compressions because there's no one else available, you know, helping in that way because that's really what's best for the patient, even though I love running the room, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think sometimes it's stepping down and letting your teammate be the leader this time even though I really want to do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think one important component to being a leader when it comes to running a code versus just going through the motions is once the code is effectively being run, you have an airway, you have a good flow going where you're pushing epi when you need to, and you have a good team of compressors doing really, really solid compressions is actually communicating with the team in general and going through your H's and T's. Because often the nurses in the room that were there before you or even people who know the patient better might have a little bit more insight into what's going on. Yeah, that's a great point. Let's say the code already has a code leader that's running the room and you're another provider in the room. What exactly should you do? Well, I think I want to preface my response by just emphasizing the word leader in team leader. So really and truly, to be a great team leader, it's not about your knowledge of ACLS or how many codes you've ran or how long you've been in medicine. It's assumed that you know the dose of the drugs and you know the algorithms and the protocol for sure. Everyone on the team should. But what makes you a good team leader is that you effectively control the people in the room, delegate orders, ensure effective communication, and ensure that the orders that you're giving are being carried out. It's also important that you prioritize all the information that you're getting in and then executing orders and treating those conditions appropriately. So it's important that there's only one code leader. If there's two or three providers in the room, maybe there's two PAs or an NP and a PA, maybe there's an MD and a PA, it's important that the providers that are not the code leader try to refrain from giving orders to the team because this creates a lot of confusion. I would suggest that all orders still go through the team leader. Of course, if the MD wants to do something that the PA is not doing, that's okay. But again, once multiple people start calling out orders, then it gets a little bit hectic and the team dynamics and performance starts to degrade. 
I think if you have a suggestion for the code leader, absolutely. But just know the timing of it. If it's the first couple of minutes of the code and we're still getting settled in and assigning the roles and, and things haven't started running smoothly yet, just hold it until until everything's gone smoothly. And you can suggest it to the code leader and then they can kind of deliver that order to the room. Let's say, hey, I think we should give Amio. But you're, you're saying it that way rather than saying give Amio. Exactly. Right? And then yeah. letting the code leader give that order to the right person. The code leader is your filter when it comes to the rest of the room. Yeah, I think that's important. Right. And if you feel like who the code leader is needs to transition for whatever reason, that current leader needs to be doing a different task or needs to go talk to the family or whatever it is, just verbalize that. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of times I will, again, just like when I walk in the room and and state that I'm the co-leader, I'll just make a statement and say, you know, I'm stepping down as co-leader and Rachel is going to be assuming the role of co-leader at this point. And then she should close loop communication, should just kind of step in and say, all right, guys, I'm now leading the code and just kind of assume control of the room. I think sometimes people are hesitant to want to do that because it makes them seem bossy. It's not really about being bossy as much as it's just keeping everyone, you know, moving in a coordinated manner. Again, it's, it's less important on who the code leader is and more important that there's one clearly established code leader. Right. Uh, what I like about running codes is it's not always traditional medicine hierarchical, right? So anyone that's ACLA certified can run a code. As long as you've spent some time becoming a good leader, you can you can execute a good code. And so then I actually a lot of times like being the other provider in the room because then I just get to be task-oriented. That leader can tell me to get an ABG or, or place an arterial line or, or go get the ultrasound and, and start looking at the heart or whatever it is. And, and I kind of relish just being in that that role for the code and and not having to also lead. Yeah. One last thing I wanted to just mention about code leader is that it's important that if at all possible, the code leader not getting themselves wrapped up in tasks of patient care, you may have to do that, you know, early on, but once you have the resources, you should step back and even maybe take a little step away from the bed and see the bigger picture and try to lead the team and not, you know, get too tunnel visioned or, or narrow minded and just see the big picture you know, you're able to kind of check in on each team member, making sure someone doesn't have the peep up too high, making sure the pads are placed correctly, you know, assessing and kind of filling in where needed be, but then delegating tasks and stepping back to that big picture. It's easy for me in a code to appear like a leader because I'm a, a tall male and already have a kind of deeper voice. Uh, but Rachel, what about you? Any tips for maybe smaller people and, and females on running a code? Yeah, I think a lot of it is just being really loud. Um, kind of what I mentioned earlier, not having a sense of a lack of control, not a like a scream that sounds like you just saw something super terrifying and you're about to like, you know, faint, but more of a very controlled yell that tells the room, I am running the code and I'm going to direct what's going on. And I think a lot of times it comes off the wrong way. But, you know, when you're smaller, even if you're female, sometimes you got to step up to that immediately just to gain that initial respect. Mm -hmm. And then as the code progresses and things are going well and people learn to trust you if they don't know you already, then things will fall into place. Right. One of the other pieces of advice I've heard, what do you think about this? Or uh, if you if you need to direct someone in doing something, you know, physically go up and touch them and say, hey, I need you to do this. See, I'm a pointer. Yeah. Point work. I like I like staying behind the bed. Uh-huh. So instead of touching, I just very aggressively point. 
<laughs> aggressively point. Yeah. So I don't kind of surprised actually that we don't, Oh, we do have this on our list here, but I think just to mention it really quick about a debrief, I think that what helps with that is the debrief. Um, and sometimes in stressful situations, you come across as, like you said, mean or forceful or bossy, or you get a little, you know, kind of short in your communication. And then you debrief afterwards and, and, and building relationships off the playing field type of thing, right? Absolutely, um, yeah. And so in the moment, just the, the tension is high. And a lot of times people perceive that you are, you know, said something or I may perceive that someone else was being a certain way. And afterwards, as we debrief and we're all calm, we take in some breaths and it's not, you know, life or death. We're able to, uh, you know, really realize and talk it out. That way we don't walk away with our feelings hurt or exactly, we yeah. all realize that we were all just a little bit, you know, elevated. Tense, right there. yeah. One thing I really enjoy doing too, I can only do this in certain hospitals, but is actually physically getting higher as well. Like I'll often get on a chair or get on a couch to make myself physically higher so people can look up to me in the room. And that, and that has helped a lot with floor codes and stuff like that. I mean, be careful, of course. You don't want to fall off the chair during the code, you know, like make sure it's a stable surface, but that has helped down. me a lot. <laughs> make for a very interesting story. You can maybe start using the chair lift. Ooh. Or your lift. <laughs> You're like sitting like a hammock. <laughs> I don't know if that would go over all that well. So, Mike, you mentioned some about the the ACLS protocol and the rigidity of it being nice. And, and there is a lot of podcasts out there, like Weingarts is a great example of kind of beyond ACLS. You want to talk about just the the pros and cons of having such a structured protocol? Yeah, sure. You know, I think the strength of ACLS is really in the standardized training. It allows us to all work together as an MD and an RN and an RT. Maybe we've never met each other. Maybe there's a couple team members from the ICU, a couple from the ED, or maybe we're mixing in the OR. It's night shift, day shift. Somebody from Piedmont Fayette's covering a shift at Atlanta or vice versa. But the fact that we all have the same standardized ACLS training, we kind of know what to expect, um, is really nice. It allows us to all work together. A similar, you know, I can't get out of any podcast episode without an aviation reference, but it's kind of <laughs> like the air traffic control system, right? You can take off in Atlanta and fly all the way to, you know, Tokyo and the system works, even though you may, you know, not even have the same first language. But uh, anyways, that doesn't necessarily mean that we always have to follow the protocol exactly into a T with absolutely no flexibility. The take home points like minimizing interruptions in chest compressions and, you know, early defibrillation and reversing the, you know, cause of the arrest by thinking about H's and T's, all of those things should still be held up as priorities in the code. But as far as, you know, not stopping for more than 10 seconds for a pulse, if you're performing a life-saving intervention like a pericardiocentesis and you can't do it during chest compressions, that may be acceptable. You know, it, the two minutes pulse checks, for example, if it's only been a minute and 30 seconds, but it just works well for the team, it's okay for a pulse check. It's okay to go three minutes. Maybe it hadn't quite, maybe you don't really know when the last epi was given. You didn't write it down. Was it two minutes ago or was it five minutes? I don't We can give another epi. That's okay. You know, a lot of the dosing and the timing, it's not like they. we've studied that and that is the exact thing that works. A lot of it does come from kind of common sense and um, they just had to pick one thing. It's hard to study these things, right? Because people, a lot of people die at the end of it. But I think that it's definitely important to be disciplined and to know the protocol 
and for the most part, follow it without a lot of deviations, just in a standard code, but to not be so rigid that you can't be flexible when the situation dictates and you need to for what makes sense for the patient. Absolutely. And I think a lot of these beyond ACLS topics are awesome and, and, and getting more advanced, uh, but it all is assuming you are running excellent regular codes. If you're running a code excellently and things are going smoothly and everything's working and you're working on your H's and T's, that is absolutely the time to think about what else you can do for the patient above and beyond what you've been doing. But if you're not doing the, the basics well, if you're not running ACLS well, then it's not worth even thinking about all the advanced stuff. So another thing to consider as you're setting up the room and kind of getting started on assigning roles and the beginning parts of the cardiac arrest is to not get too ahead of yourself. You know, there's a lot of things that we know need to be done eventually through this code. But, you know, if you don't have effective CPR going on or you don't have the pads on the patient and a rhythm check, you probably shouldn't be devoting resources elsewhere unless, of course, you have plenty of personnel that's well-coordinated and acting in parallel with each other. Again, kind of going back to my term, unable from a previous episode, until I've you know, assured high-quality CPR and an initial rhythm check just to allow for early defibrillation if it's a shockable rhythm, um, I'm really not going to delegate resources elsewhere. Now, once we get the pads on or rhythm check and we're back in you know, the next two minutes of CPR, sure, now we're going to start setting up the room with IVs and, and think about H's and T's and things of that nature. But you know, I think the overarching idea here is to understand the capabilities of your team and the limitations of the situation. Yeah, I like that. Don't let your demands outstrip your resources. Run when you can run well, and and then when more people come, you can do more. Yeah, exactly. And one thing, too, that I have found really important is when it comes to having someone part of your team, like let's say the recorder, and you can tell that they're really struggling, asking them directly, do you feel comfortable recording? Because I know nurses have told me that's one of the hardest parts sometimes of running a code. Yeah, so true. Knowing the capabilities of your team in that sense as well. So I think it's inevitable that talking about the anatomy of a code, we need to also talk about when it comes to ending a code. You know, it's very situational. It depends on the code that you're running. But in general, Mike, what are some thoughts when it comes to stopping the code? From a medical standpoint, I think you want to feel comfortable that you've explored all possible reversible causes of this code and you've treated them um, and you know, that you really have nothing more to offer this patient that may change the outcome for them. Sometimes, you know, you already know so much about the patient when they do code because they're in your ICU and you have every monitoring device on them and you pretty much know their trajectory. So it may be a five or 10 minute code or less, you know, but sometimes you know nothing about them and just the time it takes to set the patient, get the ACLS team set up and, you know, gather a working knowledge of the patient and give them a fair chance. It may be 30 or 40 minutes down the road. But, of course, that's the first step. Now, once I've medically made the decision that I think it's appropriate to stop a code, I usually want to get input from the team and make sure that I'm not just jumping to a quick conclusion or that I'm missing something. So I usually check with the team at this point. You know, I ask for suggestions usually. A lot of times I do that earlier because if I wait until we're 40 minutes into the code to ask for a suggestion, a lot of times I miss the window of opportunity. I usually try to do that around the eight-minute mark or something after I've got the team set up and I'm starting to go through my H's and T's. But for sure, just make sure no one else has any other suggestions 
as any other ideas for treatment. And, um, and of course, as your team members provide those, you really have to think. Sometimes you don't think they're appropriate and you don't have to do them. But usually, unless there's a really good reason not to do it, if someone has a suggestion, at this point, I try it because you really right. don't have a whole lot to lose. Well, I think it's important for everyone who's in that code to leave that code if it doesn't go well, to feel like we've done everything we could for that patient. And so giving them that mental and, um, and emotional feeling of we tried everything is helpful. Yeah, exactly. It's a closure. Yeah, I usually phrase that as, does anyone have any objections with stopping resuscitative efforts? And then, you know, I kind of give a good pause and let everybody think. And and if you don't give people the time to think about that, even though they may not have any objections, if you never ask it, sometimes afterwards they start second-guessing themselves and they'll say things like, should I have spoken up? And so, you know, just by making sure they don't have any objections to stopping it, a lot of times, you know, everyone leaves that code feeling like they're okay with it because we did everything we could. It's a great yeah. point. So we do call the code. Now what? So something that's made its its rounds through med Twitter and foam is is this concept of of giving the patient a moment of silence and and I've done it a couple of times and and uh, I aspire to do it now every code I'm not there yet and I've I've seen a couple other providers in our hospital system start to do it I think it's just a really nice touch to remember that the person we were just trying to revive over the last whatever period of time was a person who had a whole life. And every time I've done it or, or been a part of someone else doing it, I think it just, it's a really nice reverent moment and it just helps us understand why we're doing what we're doing. And everyone can leave the code, hopefully feeling like, like you're saying, like there is some closure there. And, and a lot of times it's a patient, I don't even know the patient's name if it's a, I just responded to the code. So I'll look down at their, at their armband and, and read their name and say, this is Mr. So-and-so. Let's take it a moment of silence to pause for and reflect on his life and, um, and then do a real pause there. So let's talk about debriefing. Should we be debriefing is obviously awesome. Should we be doing it after every code? What do you think? So I think, yes, you know, I think there's, there's really two types of debriefs that we can do. There's kind of a hot debrief. And then of course, you know, a more formal, you know, I guess cold debrief, but you know, I, I always try to do a hot debrief very quickly it can happen in really just a minute or two just points out any, any big areas of improvement or maybe some good things that we did. But usually I just quickly try to, you know, it's a little education session, want to open it up for feedback for myself too. I think it's hard sometimes to give or receive feedback in these scenarios because everyone's adrenaline's pretty high. You know, we're all still have a patient to take care of, but I do think we should be debriefing at the end of a code because that's how we get better you know, it's not necessarily whether we achieved ROSC or not that defines our performance in that code. Right. I mean, as you guys have seen, you can do everything right and the patient still pass. And a, and a code can be chaotic and hectic. And honestly, you just leave there saying, what was that? And a patient, you know, had ROSC. So, you know, I think we just need to strive every single time to get better. Who, and, sh who should lead it? Should the code leader lead it or somebody else? I think that the code leader could lead it if other people don't want to step up and do it. And I think that's probably appropriate. But honestly, I think it may be anybody on the team and may be more effective for almost a non-biased or a third party, someone that didn't have as much skin in the game to, to kind of be a neutral yeah. voice. And it's not so much of what did we do wrong. It's just uh, a team-based approach to critiquing and reviewing our performance. I like the way you're saying it. You should... 
maybe do a real quick hot debrief because the the fear is if you don't do a hot debrief everyone's going to get busy and may not come back together right. to, to do that cold debrief let's talk quickly about calling the family let's say the it's a middle of the night code family's not present how do you notify them that their loved one either coded and lived or coded and died you know this is one of the hardest parts of my job i think because um, it's it's so final i know you know, writing death certificates and notifying family. There's no easy way to do this. And, you know, talking about the human aspect of what we do, there, there's no way to to dehumanize the emotions you hear on the other end of the line mm-hmm. when you let someone know that their family didn't make it. Most of the time, I try to give the family a call, you know, early on in the code just to let them know that, you know, we're trying, you know, attempting resuscitation. So if they're close by, they can make it up to the hospital. Maybe they can give some input on, you know, code status or, you know, their end of life wishes. But usually I don't call them back if I know they're out to the hospital. I don't call them back and let them know that they passed. You know, I think that's a really bad situation to put someone in uh, while they're going down the road. They may be by themselves. Um, you know, and you just don't know how they're, how they're going to react. Could they, you know, pass out or they're going to cry so excessively they can't see the road. You know, if I do have to, to, to deliver that, you know, news over the phone, a lot of times I'll first kind of try to assess their environment. I'll ask them if they're on the road. And if they are, I'll ask them to try to pull over somewhere. They can find a parking lot or something like that. And I can have the discussion with them then. Um, but most of the time I try to wait for this person to get to the hospital and just notify them in person. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I think it's a good spot to end. I think we did a good job of, of really hitting some of the areas of improvement we've seen for running codes and for being a part of codes anything we didn't hit on yet or any final thoughts before we end up one of the things that we need to do it's good to talk about all this and again it's almost like reading the acls book or attending an acls class all this stuff's really good to talk about but this is one thing that you cannot get better at by just talking about it running a code has so many human factors involved there's no way to really get better and improve yourself outside of just memorizing the protocol unless you get together and you do it as a team. So I think simulation is something we should be striving for with us. We should be practicing different aspects of the code. And I don't mean us as PAs and, and MDs and nurse practitioners in one room practicing while there's nurses down the hall practicing theirs and there's a therapist down in their department. You know, we all have to get together. That's where the pain points come is working with people that we may not train with every day. Absolutely. It's a team sport, getting all different members from the team there together to practice it and really work on. The hard part about running a code, like we've been saying, is not the algorithm. The algorithm's easy once you've done it a couple of times. It's really the intangibles, being a good leader, being a good team member, communicating clearly and concisely to each other. And so, absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. And I think having grace for each other, too. I mean, this is something that comes a little more natural to some people than others. And just understanding this is this is chaos it, as we started the episode out. And we can't really make a code not chaotic. I think all we can ask for is to just control the chaos a little bit. And so I fully expect for something to go wrong in every code. I fully expect for there to be areas of improvement. I don't think I've ever really ran a code where afterwards we've said, no, we did everything perfectly. And so responding to that with grace amongst our teammates and collaborating as a team member instead of an adversary when it comes to the debrief is really important. Absolutely. Exactly, yeah. Well, Mike, thank you so much. You have confirmed what we already knew. You are awesome. We really appreciate you coming on the show and teaching us about all the things. 
Yeah, thank you so much, guys. It's been a pleasure. So until next time, keep breathing, keep streaming, and keep reading, and keep doing your compressions. Don't, don't, don't. Another one, Beth. Uh-uh.